So with our sermon today, uh, we come to the end of not only our Nehemiah series, but our Ezra-Nehemiah series. Ezra, if you remember, Ezra and Nehemiah was actually one book that was split up later on. And so we have been uh, preaching on this series since, do you guys remember when we started this series? October of last year. It's been nine and a half months that we've been preaching in Ezra and Nehemiah. Have you guys enjoyed the journey? Did you guys enjoy it? I loved it. I, you know, I think the thing that stood out to me the most and the thing that I take away every single time I got to prepare for these sermons was one fact and one truth that I think impacted me every single time and I wanted to preach on this every single week and if I could, I would. And that's this. Nothing can change God's love for you. God is absolutely committed to you. He loves you. He cares for you. No matter how unfaithful you might be, nothing can stop the love of God for you, even our unfaithfulness. And and even when we are, he will go out of his way to awaken us so that we could see how amazing and loving he is, how much he cares for us, and how he only wants his best for our lives. Sure, it takes an exile, right? Sure, it takes a difficult journey. Sure, it takes a rebuilding. But all was that, all that served to do in the, in, the, in, the, in the lives of the Israelites was to simply awaken them to how amazing it truly is to be God's child. There's nothing greater than that. Right? And that, to me, is what was amazing about Ezra and Nehemiah. So for the past nine and a half months, we, we've gone through this miraculous journey of the Israelites being called back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, and to be reestablished as the people of God. But as we come to an end, the question that I want to ask you is this, and maybe it's obvious, maybe it isn't, hopefully it is. What was the whole point? What, was, what did God want to accomplish by giving us these books what is the main point here, you know? And so to me, it's cheating, but I think it's twofold. Okay, so I'm going to give two big things that I think will summarize the whole thing using Nehemiah 13. I think after studying all of these books, um, it seems very obvious to me that this whole journey to, you know, to go back to Jerusalem, to reestablish the temple, to rebuild the city, um, was not the main goal of God. But the main goal of God was to reestablish the centrality of the worship of God in his people. That's it, right? He wanted his people to simply be centered upon worshiping him. And if they did, and if they trusted in him, if they just trusted him and loved him with all their heart, soul, mind, and being, that he would take care of everything. That's it, right? The whole journey from exile to reestablishment was a lesson to the people to keep God first in their lives. And I hope all of us, we got that. I, I think I tried, I said that phrase every single week, to keep God central, to keep God first, to have the worship of God as our primary objective and everything that we do. I think I've said that like every single time. Um, but mo- So hopefully we all got that. But most importantly, I hope in light of that, we all made changes within our lives so that we can make sure that God really is central in each one of our lives. So over and over again in these two books, God proved to the Israelites that all he ever wants is to be their God and for him and for them to be his people, right? Unreservedly, willingly, completely, passionately. That's it. 
And we especially saw that in the past few chapters, right? The Israelites, they read scripture, they repented, they committed their, themselves to the worship of God. They made God central in their whole society. They did everything right. And, you know, if the book ended in chapter 12, this would be the most amazing story, I think, in all of scripture, right? It would have been an absolutely beautiful, perfect story of people who sinned, repented, reestablished God as the center, and God just blessed them. It would have been amazing, if the story simply just ended in chapter 12. But unfortunately, or fortunately, there is a chapter 13. Unlucky 13, but 13 it is. And this is how it ends. Uh, and in chapter 13, this absolutely perfect picture, picture book story gets absolutely spoiled. And in chapter 13, all the promises that the people covenanted to God all get broken and that's how our story ends. It's a very, very sad book. But with that said, you know, uh, I absolutely love chapter 13. Okay? Uh, and the reason why is because chapter 13 is so real. You know, I love perfect stories. I love beautiful stories. I love storybook endings to movies. I love all of those things. I love people who are holy. I love people who love God with all their hearts, soul, mind, and being. But maybe it's because I'm a little bit evil. But I also like seeing imperfection in people. Because when I see imperfection, what I really just see is that these guys are just human beings. You know, sometimes people can look really holy and good and all awesome. And then maybe the evil part of us celebrates when we see flaws in them because we realize they're not as holy as they seem to portray. And, you know, but maybe a better way to say it is this. You know, um, I don't know if I've ever met a Christian who was faithful in every single way, 24-7, 365 days a year. Do you know what I'm saying? If I did meet one, I definitely wouldn't be that guy's friend because I would always be intimidated and I would always be insecure. But the reality is no one is. No one is faithful 365, 24-7. And so unfaithfulness, if you think about it, is a reality of our walk with Jesus. And chapter 13 is a gift to us because... It shows us God's response to unfaithfulness even after a great movement of God, even after a great revival, even a graft after great moments that we may have had with God ourselves. But let's not quickly look over the unfaithfulness part. Another purpose of chapter 13, really, and when we look at chapter 13 at the surface level, is to give us a window into our future if we are not vigilant in keeping the worship of Christ central to our lives. Okay, so those are kind of the big picture things. Um, so let's get into our text today, and let's look at it you know, more specifically. Once again, um, if this book ended with chapter 12, I think it would have been great. The people were consecrated to him. They were worshiping him in the temple, in the city, in the countryside. Everything was about God, and it was absolutely beautiful. God was the center of their society. But then as we move into chapter 13, which is estimated to be about between 1 to 20 years later, there's, that's as good as we're going to get. One to 20 years later, we see that a lot of things have changed. A lot of things can happen in 10 years, right? Look at roads. 10 years ago, roads is a dump. Look at those buildings. Look at Chatswood, right? Look at Barangaroo. Look at my area, you know? I, so many things can change in 10 years. People can change in 10 years. And if you remember back in chapter 10, people made three huge covenants with God. Right? People made these three covenants. Number one, not to intermarry with foreigners. Number two, not, uh, to make sure that they kept the Sabbath holy. 
And number three, to give generously to the work of the temple. But by this chapter, they violated all three of them. The first thing they violated was giving generously to the temple. Verses 4 and 14, if you read that, it says that the people stopped giving to the temple, period, right? All the rooms in the temple that were supposed to be filled with instruments of worship, uh, with grain offerings and sacrifices, all the rooms in the temple that were supposed to be actually filled even with money and the offerings that were supposed to be given to the temple were not filled at all, right? And so the workers of the temple who were supposed to be paid by all of these offerings were no longer even found in the temple. What were they doing? They were out in the fields, working the fields because they had no income and they had to survive. Why? Because the people had stopped giving generously for the work of the temple. And the story that comes out of this is really interesting because the high priest, or the, the high priest, the head priest, Eliashib, who was in charge of making sure that God would always remain central in the worship of this society, all of a sudden we realize that he allowed his family to marry Tobiah. Tobiah was the arch enemy of Nehemiah as well as Israel. All throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, you read about attacks upon the city. That was all led by Tobiah. But then all of a sudden, we read that the head priest, who is in charge of keeping God central, allows his family to marry into Tobiah's family. And then as a favor to Tobiah, this head priest, Eliashib, uh, decides to make room for Tobiah to reside in the temple. Right Now, on one level, obviously, that's really, really bad. This head priest all of a sudden allows his family to marry a non-Jew. Okay, I didn't mention that. Tobiah was a non-Jew. He wasn't even a Jew. But not only is that bad that he allowed him to marry a non-Jew, but he allowed him to marry uh, the arch enemy of Israel and Nehemiah. And if that wasn't bad enough, what he did was he allowed, Eli- he allowed Tobiah to now reside at the temple. And what that means practically for us is very simple. Eliashib, who was supposed to be the one in charge, making sure that God was central in everything that this new society did, all of a sudden not only surrendered, but abdicated all of his authority to Tobiah, this non-Jew, to now rule Israel. That's how psycho bad it got. Okay? So that's not just bad. But that's pure evil. It's a betrayal of everything that God had entrusted, not only in him, but in the people of God, right? So the question is, what was Nehemiah doing at this time? Surely he would have stopped this, don't you think? But what Nehemiah did right after chapter 12 was he went to go back. He went back to Susa, which is uh, in Babylon, to serve the king once again. That's what he was doing. And he, he Remember, his original request was, can you just give me some time to go and reestablish things? Once I'm done, I'll come back. Once he was done, he went back. And that's exactly what happened. And so what happened in the next 20 years is that he would go back and forth between Jerusalem and Susa to see how things were going. Now, obviously, we don't know what the last gap of years was, but it was enough. The the gap between the last time he visited was huge enough for all of these bad choices to have been made. So when Nehemiah visits, what does he do? The first thing he does is he gets angry. He sees Tobiah in the room. He throws Tobiah out. He clears out all those things. He throws out all the furniture, everything that he's done, you know, to be to reside there. And then not only that, but he takes it a step further, which is very interesting. And then he orders this these rooms to now be consecrated. That's a very important step. And the reason why is because those rooms 
were dedicated to the worship of God. That temple was dedicated to one thing, and that was the worship of God. That church, if the church was a building, was dedicated to the worship of God. The people who really is the real church are dedicated to the worship of God. And he's sending this great message to everybody and saying, hey, we, this is all we were called to do. This is the one thing and the only thing that we had to do. But we messed that up. The second covenant that was broken was keeping the Sabbath holy. Nehemiah saw Jews working, selling, and trading on the Sabbath. But what's interesting here is that he doesn't rebuke the people for working, selling, and trading. Who does he rebuke? The spiritual leaders. He gathers the nobles and the priests, and he rebukes them for allowing this to happen. And then, of course, he stops all the working and the trading on the Sabbath. But he rebukes them because he says, you guys are supposed to be the ones that weren't allowed. You guys were the ones that, that, were, that, that should have prevented from all this from happening. So not only does he rebuke them, but he orders them to purify themselves. Why? Because once again, they, the spiritual leaders, had forgotten their primary purpose and role, which was to lead people into worship, right? That's huge. If we think about the implications for spiritual leaders today, if you're a ministry leader, CG leader, if you're a pastor of any, in any way, right? our primary purpose is to make sure that our people Keep God central, right? The third covenant that was broken was interfaith marriages. Nehemiah saw that people were married to foreigners, and he saw children who could no longer speak Hebrew, right? And so he gets angry. Now, the thing is, if you remember in our Ezra series, we saw that before. Ezra saw that people had married uh, people of different countries, and what did uh, Ezra do? He just issued divorces, and he kicked out everyone who was a foreigner and kicked out all their kids, that was really harsh, okay? Nehemiah decides not to take such a harsh approach this time when he observes it, although um, he does take kind of a harsh approach. He, he doesn't kick them out, but he curses them, and then he beats them up, and then he pulls out their hair, okay? Uh, to be clear, when I said that he's cursing them, it doesn't mean that he's yelling profanities like we would in our day and age but he's actually yelling covenant curses, which might be worse than profanities, because he's literally calling upon the curses of God upon their lives unless they repent. And then he beats them up, and then he pulls out their hair, right? So the question is, why doesn't he just issue divorces like Ezra did? Why does he take a not as harsh, but yet completely harsh approach to this particular situation? And it's very, very simple. I think he learned from Ezra that he didn't want to destroy families. Families are huge. Families are the fabric of a holy society. Families are the fabric of society, period. And so he decides not to destroy their families, but instead he wants to awaken the people back to their purpose, which is to make God first. And they violated that by marrying people of a different faith. And that was the real issue, okay? Back then, language was the way that they passed down their faith from one person to another. The Bible commands us to write the law on people's hearts and to write the law on the walls of their homes. But the thing is, if you couldn't speak Hebrew, and if you couldn't read Hebrew, what does that mean? It meant that these parents didn't value their faith. They didn't even want to pass it down to their children. God was not that important to them anymore inside the home. And if that's going to happen, then guess what's going to happen to the church? Guess what's going to happen to the rest of that Hebrew society? They won't fear God anymore. And if that's the case, then what was the whole point of being exiled in the first place? 
What was the whole point of being punished? What was the whole point of coming back and rebuilding the city and becoming reestablished? And Nehemiah sees that, and he gets absolutely infuriates him. Because Nehemiah realizes that if we want a chance for our church to truly be salt and light, to truly be these places where God resides, then faith has to remain central in the home. Faith must remain central within each one of our homes, right? That's, that's the only way that we as a church, that we as a faith society, won't go astray and crumble. Unfortunately, the Bible and the church is lined with story after story of this spiritual reality. Whenever families refuse to keep God central, that's when churches would fall apart. And so he allows these foreigners to stay if they would only follow and fear God and make him first within their lives. You know, I, I can't, I don't think I can stress this point enough. You know, I think Christians today, we're fighting a very uphill battle. It's been proven in the last census, census that believers are no longer the majority group in our country. And um, therefore, we're no longer the majority mindset, nor are we the majority culture. And I think there's never been a greater time in Australian history to stand firm in our faith, to decide with all that we have to reveal the true character and value of God to our society by making him first within our lives, right? I believe that the church will only remain strong and possibly, and I hesitate to use this word, I think the church will only, not only remain strong, but quote-unquote relevant, I hate that word relevant, but I think today is a day that I apologize. Um, I was about to ad-lib something, and I'm hesitating whether I should say something or not. You know, that's all it is. And if I, if I start something, I'll just get on my stupid soapbox and start saying some stuff. So I'm just going to shut up and just go on with the sermon, okay? So I'm struggling internally. Um, what I'll say is this, beginning back to the sermon. I think the church will only remain strong. And the church will actually be the salt and light in the city on the hill that it was always meant to be in God's eyes. When the church is filled with families who truly seek to keep God first. You know, when families are passionate about God, and when we, you know, then our faith society has a great opportunity and a great chance of being strong for God together. And so that's all I want to stress. You know, if you're married, obviously the, the application is very, very straightforward. Keep God central in your marriage and in your family. But if you're single, you know, to me, I believe it means intentionally living out your faith at home the best way that you can. If your parents and your siblings are convinced that you actually follow God and fear God, you probably do. But not only that, but if you live in a home that, you know, where you actually live with non-believers or people who are not, you know, who don't even fear God, the greatest way that you're going to bring God into your home is to obey him and to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. That will impact your non-believing family the best. 
right? And that's what we need to do. And when we have that and we have people who are living for God in our homes, that's the hardest place to live out your faith. But if we have people living out their faith inside their homes, then I have every confidence that our church will be filled with people who are not only vibrantly walking with God, but will make an impact in the society, in this world together. You know, It's only when we start walking with God that we start to dream for God. It's only when we start to dream for God that we actually start really living and taking risks for God that we never would in the first place. And when we start taking risks for God, that's when all of a sudden God starts to show up and move within our lives, and that's when we invest more in him. And that's something that I think is missing in the church today. You know, We need people to live for God. And Nehemiah knew that, right? And so, you know, in our passage today, this Eliashib guy, you know, this head priest, he didn't value God. And he didn't fear God. He didn't make God first as a spiritual leader. And as a result, what did we see in this chapter? Not only did his family, but everyone under him just started to compromise and fall away. And, and they compromised their faith in every single way possible. The moment spiritual leaders failed to walk closely with God and to uphold their responsibility to keep God central in the lives of their members, the rest of the church is bound to fall just like Israel did in this chapter. Um, total side note, it's not an easy job to be a spiritual leader. And if you really understood what the burden is spiritually to lead, no one would ever humanly want to choose it. But it's a great honor to be called by God to lead people spiritually. But it's a very, very difficult road. All of your CG leaders, your ministry leaders, your pastors, you know, they, they carry this burden to make sure that you guys love God and walk with God. And it's very important that you guys pray for them. As difficult as it is for them to carry that responsibility and to actually live for God themselves, it's a huge responsibility on, you, on your part as members to pray for them, to care for them, to encourage them, to empower them so they can be faithful as well. Because it is a difficult journey that they choose to walk. So please support your leaders powerfully uh, together. And let's fight for them together. Uh, but what a sad way, what a sad way to end this whole book, isn't it? We end the book on unfaithfulness. This great journey, this great two, you know, book journey on this, on these amazing, miraculous movements of God ends with the unfaithfulness of his people. But with that, it points to the second reason why I believe Ezra and Nehemiah exist. <laughs> the first reason was to teach us that the worship of God must be primary within our hearts and within our families. But the second reason is this. No matter how sincere you may be in your faith, our promises to God cannot be kept without the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the daily sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. It's a long sentence. What am I, if I can say it real quick, we can't be faithful without God's help. That's it. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what it teaches us. We cannot be faithful without God's help. All God ever wants, and all God, and this is what we studied in the past two books, all God ever wants is to be the God of your life. All he wants from us is to be his children, 
right? For us to be his people fully, unreservedly, completely, passionately, right? He wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being. But the problem is that our sinful nature continually draws us away from him so that we could worship ourselves. Our sinful nature constantly drives us so that we can hunger after the things of this world, so that we can hunger after things that we know don't serve us eternally or serve him eternally whatsoever. So it pulls us. It makes us rebel, right? Uh, and that's what it is. Our sinful nature does that. Chapter 13 proves that to us. People just don't wake up one morning and decide, oh, I'm going to be unfaithful today completely. No one does that. But even true worshipers slowly move in that direction when we fail to depend upon him daily to keep him first. I'll be honest with you. You know, uh, the first two years of me here at FLM, I started the first month of the pandemic. The first month of the lockdown was my first week here. And uh, two years since that day, my walk with God has never been closer. You know, when, you know, I'm very frank with you, when fear and the unknown, which the coronavirus was to me, uh, is knocking at your door every day. When those two things are knocking at your door every day, you hold on to God hard. And that's exactly what I did. I don't know if I've ever been closer to God than the first two years that I served here at this church. Um, I but this year, I struggled a lot. You know, in 2022, there were no lockdowns. But I struggled in my walk with God. And I, and, 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 and I think the reason why is very simple. I thought after two years of walking really tight with God, you know, I thought to this year would just be okay. I thought I can kind of cruise it. You know, I thought, oh, yeah, I built up some spiritual equity with God. I built up some spiritual credit. I'm surely that carries over, doesn't it? But it doesn't. It doesn't work like that. You know, uh, we need today's graces for today. Tomorrow's graces are for tomorrow. And so every single day, we just need to what? Remain in him. There's a great verse in John 15. Uh, verses 4 and 5 says this. Jesus says this. He says, remain in me. As I also remain in you, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This verse stresses three points. And here are the, here's, here, here are the three. The first is the best. It says that Jesus remains in us, right? If you have faith in Christ, Jesus Christ is in you. Right? And you guys have to remember that. You guys have to know that Jesus Christ is alive and residing within you. And because he is, all that we need to be faithful every day, we already have. Because Jesus is in us. Okay, That's awesome. That's beautiful. Secondly, this is what he says, though. He says, though, yes, I'm in you. But just because I'm in you, it doesn't automatically mean that you're going to bear fruit. That's what it's saying. In order for you to do that, you have to now remain in me. I'm in you. But you need to remain in me if you want to bear fruit. That's what he's saying here. Right? Isn't that amazing? What does it mean to remain in him? It simply means that you must actively seek him and depend upon him every single day to keep him first, to keep him central. If you don't, point three, you can't do anything. You can't bear anything eternal. That's what he's saying, right? And it's that clear, isn't it? We can do nothing apart from actively seeking after Christ every single day and depending upon him. And when we fail to do that daily, just like I did throughout this year, then surely, slowly but surely, 
Our minds and our hearts bend towards unfaithfulness. Our hearts and our minds bend towards worldliness and sinfulness, right? And if we leave it unchecked for too long, what happens? One day we're going to wake up and we're actually going to desire unfaithfulness, right? We're going to desire to be unfaithful and to actually maybe even detest God one day, right? Christians who loved God yesterday don't just wake up and hate God tomorrow, but slowly but surely as they bend towards unfaithfulness and they lack remaining in Christ, that's what happens. I hope that's none of you. Uh, if it is, you probably wouldn't be here today. So I'm going to guess that's probably none of you. But if that is you and you end up, you're here or you're watching, please contact me or contact your CG leader. We would love to help you. We'd love to walk with you. It's not an easy place to be, but you simply reaching out to us is powerful. Right? We will start praying for you, we'll love you, and we'll walk with you. Right? Um, most likely, if you're hearing this and you realize, yeah, I think I'm bending towards unfaithfulness. I don't think I've been remaining in Christ, and therefore I see my heart, I see my life, I see my desires, and it's not bending towards Jesus, it's actually bending away from Jesus, then I hope today's passage really is a wake-up call for you. I hope it is, right? I hope it inspires you to repent, to throw out the things out of your life that you need to, just like Nehemiah did in that temple, to throw out the things that just clutter and are sinful or just, just wipe it all out clean. And then once again, cleanse yourself. What's the word? What's the word? My vocabulary is escaping me at the moment. But, you know, purify yourselves to be his once again, you know, um, one thing that I always do when I repent, and a lot of times I always feel like, uh, I always get down on myself whenever I catch myself seeing myself not as holy as I wish, disappointed in myself that I sin the same sin for the 10,000th time, or, you know, the easy thing to do is to berate myself and to put myself down and to make myself feel less than I should. But, don't do stuff like that. It's unhealthy. You're just practicing the wrong thing. Don't ever practice bad things. Don't ever practice bad spiritual habits. But the greatest thing you can do is practice spiritual truth. And I always remind myself of this spiritual truth whenever I find myself in the deepest of sins, whenever I find myself hopeless, not being able to turn away. I always say Christ is residing in me. right? And what that means to me is that the Christ, not only that Christ himself is residing within me, but that his resurrection power, the power that caused him to rise from the dead, resides within me to overcome my, my sinful nature tomorrow, to overcome my desires for temptation, my desires for the things of the world tomorrow. Because Christ is in me, I now have everything I have, I, I now have everything that I need to be faithful, to have victory over temptation, to have victory over sin tomorrow, to be victorious tomorrow because Christ resides now within me. And Eddie, why wouldn't you hold on to that power? Why would you sacrifice that in order to enjoy the temporary things of this world again when you know it drags you down? Why wouldn't you hold on to that power which gives you victory? This is what I remind myself of. Chapter 13 proves to me that even though we might be in sin, Christ's power to cleanse us and to turn us around is already powerfully working within each one of us. And even greater, 
chapter 13 proves to us that even if we ever get to a point within our lives where we feel like we've forgotten God, or even when our hearts have turned so cold that we've become absolutely shut off from God and we decide to rebel like the Israelites did, God will never cut us off. His love for us cannot stop for us. He will never cut us off. He will never forget about us. He will never give up on us. But instead, what did he do in chapter 13? He steps in. Right? He awakens us to our sin through his love. He clears the sin out. He forgives us. And then he invites us once again to love him just as much as he loved them. Chapter 13 could have easily ended like this. God saw their unfaithfulness and so he left. Right? Or so he gave up. Easy. That to me is just. That to me makes sense. But what does chapter 13 prove to us? That God chooses to love his unfaithful people even harder when they're unfaithful so that they can love him once again. I want to end by three cool verses that Nehemiah says. Um, Throughout this chapter, Nehemiah keeps on saying this one phrase. It's in verses 14, verses 22, verses 30. I'm just going to read... Uh, 14, 22, and 31. It says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Don't wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And at the end it says, Remember me, O my God, for your good. Or for good. Now what you have to realize is it sounds like he's saying, Oh God, please don't get amnesia. But remember me. Remember every good thing that I've done for you. But if you think about that, that's a silly prayer. That's not what he's saying because God is God. God's not going to forget anything. So this is what he's saying. These three verses reveal two eternal truths that I want you to remember. And then we're going to sum it up. The first eternal truth that he's saying is this. He's saying that there is one day going to come a day where all of these frustrations, where all of these struggles and all of this sinfulness that we battle every single day, one day, it's going to be over. And the day that it's over is the day that Christ comes to take us back and to take us home. That's what he's declaring. Number two. So until then, he's saying that God will always be faithful to you. God will always be faithful to his people. His love will always be steadfast. And therefore, he will always work for the good. Always work for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes, which is what? To keep him first daily. And if you understand that, then I pray that your I pray that Nehemiah's request, which is what he's making through these verses, becomes your request as we end this series together. This is his request. All he wants, this is what he's saying. He wants his earthly life today to be a reflection of his future glory tomorrow. That's it. Whatever, when you take me to heaven, Jesus, and you make me perfect, It's going to be awesome, and I can't wait for that day. But until that day, make me like that now and help me to live out who you're going to make me to be tomorrow, today. Right? And so every single day, he strives to live that life today as a worship 
of his future reality in Christ. And if he has to fight every single day tooth and nail to be as holy as God wants him to be, he'll do it. If he has to resist temptation and sin to the point of shedding blood, he'll do it. If he has to love others the way God does, even though it kills him, he'll do it. If it means that he needs to infuse God's character and God's will upon, his, upon the people of this earth, he'll do it. If it means that he needs to uphold justice and personify forgiveness and redemption like Christ, he'll do it. Even at the cost of unpopularity, even at the cost of being persecuted by the people who are even on his team. Christians won't even understand. But yet he'll do it. Why? Because God will never give up on us. So we'll never, ever, ever. So he's never, ever going to give up on living for him. As we end our series together, um, this is the last challenge that I'd like to present to you. To make your life today a reflection of tomorrow's glory. Fight tooth and nail each day to be holy. Fight to be the salt and light that God has called you to be. Fight to keep him primary and depend upon him every single day to do so. Let's pray. first challenge I just want to share with you is very simple. I hope, the, I hope these two books serve to awaken you to how important God really is. How much he loves you, how much he cares for you, how much he'll never stop caring for you, and that he loves you with a perfect love that no one else can. And I hope, just like me, I hope it awakened you to that, that no matter how unfaithful I might be, no matter how much I might turn away, he will never turn away from me. As a matter of fact, he'll probably pursue me even harder because he loves me and he loves you too. The first truth I always want you to pray about and enjoy today is his love for you. Will you declare that over yourself?
biggest request I have for you as we end our series together is that there's this one day Jesus Christ is going to take us home. It's hard living as a Christian. There's like temptation at our door every single day. There's like sinfulness, the worldliness, the things of this world really are tasty and they're fun. And they're, you know, they make us happy. And so there's a lot of competition. But then there's God. And I just pray that throughout this series you realize that the glory that he has awaiting for us is so much greater than any of these temporary joys can be here on this earth. Especially for those who have tasted Jesus Christ personally. I know sometimes when we haven't tasted Jesus Christ in such a long time, it's so easy to choose what's immediately accessible than what we know to be much greater. And so I'm appealing to your wisdom. I'm appealing to your sense of rational thinking. I'm appealing to what you believe is best for your life, for eternity. And I'm asking you once again to choose Christ, to choose who Christ says you will be one day and to make that your reality today and to live out that reality today. Is that easy? No, it's not. It's actually really difficult. It takes everything that we have. It takes the conscientious, intentional choice to live holy each and every single day. But we can't do that without Jesus. So it takes the conscientious, intentional choice to live with Christ, alongside Christ every single day. And I'm asking you to do that. It's only then that we can start to truly experience victory. It's only then that we're going to start dreaming for God. It's only then will we that we'll actually be truly awakened to the life that he actually has in store for us here on this earth. So I'm asking you to make that choice today. Will you surrender your life to live for Jesus and to make him first, to make him central? Throw out whatever you need to throw out. Surrender what you need to surrender.
last prayer point. Can we pray for our families in our church? And not just the families in FLM, but your families. I think we need to pray a lot for our families. There's a lot of families that might call themselves Christian, but aren't centered upon Christ. There's a lot of Christians who might call themselves Christians who aren't centered upon Christ. But today, if you made the commitment to live for Jesus, maybe you live in a difficult home. Let's pray for your let's pray for your home. Let's pray for your family. Let's pray for your unbelieving parents or your siblings. Let's pray for your not as committed family. Let's pray for, you know, even the families here at FLM, obviously. But let's pray for your families. And let's pray for you. I'm gonna pray for you so that you can be faithful in the midst of such a difficult environment and that you will stand strong for God. So can we do that? Can we pray for our families and pray for each other's families? Let's pray. you choose to understand you choose to walk alongside us so that you can woo our hearts back to you we thank you father that when we're at our most rebellious your love for us is probably even the most intense we thank you that you pursue us with a relentless love with a relentless passion with a ceaseless desire for us to be awakened to what truly matters and how beautiful and wonderful you are and how worthy you are to give everything that we have and to live for with all that we have. And Father, we thank you, God, that your patience never ends. We thank you, Father, that your forgiveness is eternal. There's, it's limitless. That every single day, even though we might have sinned yesterday like, profusely, that today's mercies are new. God, that your mercies are new every single morning for us. 
And we thank you, God, that not only do you pursue us relentlessly, but your desire for us to truly live an eternally significant life, an eternally rewarding life, is just as passionate. So God, help us to do that because there's so many things in this world that are so like attractive. There's so many things in this world, God, that, that actually give us a lot of happiness. There's so many things in this world, God, that we feel like are so worthy to chase, but we know deep inside our hearts have no eternal value, but yet we choose to chase them anyway. God, we ask that somehow, some way that you will dull our, our desires for those things. God, that you would awaken us and clarify to us how silly and how ephemeral those things can truly be. And God, give us such a desire for the eternal God that all we would want is what counts for eternity regardless of what the cost of the price might be to us today. And the only reason why is because you're so close to us that you're, you're right next to us that we see the treasure, the true treasure in you alone. So God, we need you to change our hearts and our minds so that we would want to walk with you, so that we would want you every day. So Father, I pray, do your supernatural work within us. There's a lot of people in this room that are struggling. There's a lot of people in this room that now we're not holding on to the things of this world. They're holding on to us. And God, we need you to break those chains. We ask that you do so so that we might be free to love you with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and being and walk with you for all the days of our lives. Lord, we pray that your power would do that within us. We thank you, God. We thank you that your love for us is so awesome and so amazing. God, help us to be people who love you with all that we have. That's what we want. God, help us to do just that. We thank you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.